2 Chronicles chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. Then Solomon sent word to Huram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David my father and sent him him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, so do so for me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicating it to him, to burn fragrant incense before him, then to set out the showbread continually, and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feasts of the Lord our God, this being required forever in Israel." The house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? Now send me a skilled man to work in gold, silver, brass, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and violet fabrics. And who knows, (coughs) excuse me, who knows how to make engravings to work with the skilled men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber of Lebanon. And indeed my servants will work with your servants to prepare timber in abundance for me, for the house which I am about to build will be great and wonderful. Father, We pray that the process of building this house would be great and wonderful. We pray that we would be a house for the name of the Lord. Just as Solomon purposed to build the temple, as David purposed to design the temple, we pray, Father, that we would be purposeful in the lives in which we live. Not unto ourselves, Father, but to You. And we do pray, Lord, for a centering of ourselves on Christ Jesus. That we would be circling You, looking at You, always to You. That we would cry out to You as we sang, that You would be the strength, Lord, of our hearts and the center of our power and not the other way around. Lord Jesus, come by Your Spirit this morning and be with us. And teach us and see these things into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, now I'm not going to say guys only, although I think it's probably more of a guy thing, but how many of you remember building models when you were kids? Something that I see a few hands. I remember cars and planes and boats, and you'd go into the, the small shops or the stores, and there'd be those little packages, yay big, and they'd have the car on it. And then the, the car on the cover always looked so cool. You know, the plane looked so awesome. And you just knew that this time you were going to get it right. I got a submarine model from my grandparents one year. Coolest looking thing in the world. 200,000 plastic parts. <laughs> and it came with the model glue, you know, which never really worked. And model paint. Those were the days before those irritating little plastic stickers, you know, that are on all the toys now. And I remember putting that thing together. And how excited I was because the outside of the box, it just looked great. And getting to work on it and popping all the little parts out of the plastic frame that they were in and trying to get the glue to work and the paint to work and what came out was this... It didn't look like a submarine. You know, I mean, it was long, but things were not in the right place. I waited for the glue to dry before putting it in the bathtub. And that didn't work so well. And I remember asking my dad about that. I saying, Dad, why is it I can never get it to look like what's on the cover, like that picture? And he said in, <laughs> in Mike Brady fashion, Well, son, you've got to read the directions. <laughs> oh, the directions, okay. As we begin Second Chronicles here, which is really part two of a four-part scroll. One long scroll, we talked about when we began First Chronicles, that it included the Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. It was all rolled up into one, which is one of the reasons why we believe Ezra probably was the, the author, the human author anyway, the, the scribe who wrote out First and Second Chronicles. But as we come to this second part here, we come to the building of something that was a model 
of far greater things. Now by itself, the temple was a marvel of the ancient world. It was stunning, beautiful, a magnificent structure. A house for the name of the Lord. But make no mistake about it. What you have to understand when you begin to look at the construction of the Jewish temple is that for all its splendor and importance, it was itself a model. It was not the original. It was a model of the original, patterned after the original. We know this unique building, this house for the name, was conceived and drawn up by God Himself, not by David. He gave the blueprints. The temple was by divine design. Now the tabernacle before it had been also by divine design. Back in Exodus 25, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, According to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Exodus 25, all the way through the end of the chapter, actually beginning a little bit before that, is all design plans for the tabernacle. When people come to that part of Scripture, and it's one of those sections oftentimes you come to and you go, okay, skip, 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 story. Okay, good. We can read this. But it's hugely significant. The Lord is is very specific and meticulous in how He tells Moses to build that tabernacle. It has to be built just so according to design. And of course, Stephen in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Follow the directions, God said to Moses. Now regarding the temple, the Lord had told David the same thing. First Chronicles 28.19, David said, All this the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So the tabernacle and the temple were very specific. They were detailed by divine design. Why? Why is the Lord so particular about these structures being made just so? I mean, why not allow a little creative license, Lord? Why not allow the the men to to get in there and maybe have a little architectural innovation, do do some different things, have some new concepts and ideas? Well, as I shared, I learned the hard way that not following the exact plans and pattern for the model submarine led to a model that didn't work. And that's what I want us to think about. There are some interesting implications in the design of the temple. In fact, we'll call them for our purposes this morning, templications. Okay? The first one is an eternal implication. The divine design of both the temple and the tabernacle before it has eternal and heavenly implications because these were modeled after the original. You see, there was an original that preceded the tabernacle, that preceded the temple. The original, which is in the heavens itself. Keep your finger there for, in Second Chronicles and flip over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, all the way over in the Newer Testament. <coughs> Hebrew writer, I think it was Paul, is talking about this exact thing where he says in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 8, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. He's talking about Jesus. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve, watch this, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The tabernacle was a copy of the original. Just as Moses had warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Skip down to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. Hebrews 9, 19. He says, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, that is the book of the law, and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you, which is a little gross. 
He sprinkled blood on the book and the people. Why? It was a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus, as Les talked about a communion, that would be sprinkled then on us. And he says in verse uh, 20, saying, this is the blood of the commandment which God commanded, covenant which God had commanded you. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. He's quoting Leviticus 17.11 there, the key passage in the book of Leviticus. Without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What are you saying, Rick? Simply that... The tabernacle and the temple were earthly, shadowy models, patterns, copies modeled after the true temple, the true tabernacle that exists in heaven. What, you really believe there's an actual like temple deal in heaven? I absolutely do. Partially because I tend to take Scripture literally. He says what he says, means what he says, and says what he means. But when we look at these things, it's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, you can find nearly every piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle and later in the temple there in heaven. As John's eyes are open, as he's caught up in this heavenly vision and sees heavenly things, we see so much of the furniture already there right in the heavens. Revelation chapter 1, we see the lampstand. Now there were several pieces of furniture, you Bible students will remember seven of them to be precise, I'll just remind you of them quickly when you walked into the tabernacle or the temple. When you come into the, the, the entrance there, the first thing you would see is the bronze sea or, or labor, which was filled with water for the washing, for purification and after sacrifices. And you would see the bronze altar for sacrifice, two pieces of furniture there. You go into the holy place. And on the left side there was the lampstand, that golden lampstand with, with a shaft coming up the middle and six branches off of it containing seven golden lamps. That would be on the left side. On the right side, the golden table of showbread containing 12 pieces of bread stacked up and placed fresh every day. And straight in front of you, against the veil, there was the altar of incense. There was also golden, a small altar there. Go around the veil and inside the Holy of Holies and there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now if you were counting that six pieces, the seventh piece, which is actually separate but connected to the Ark, is the mercy seat that sits on top of the ark. So those seven pieces of furniture, all present in earthly, physical form in the tabernacle and in the temple, we see, we see in the heavenlies. I love this. The lampstand is there in the heavenlies. It's that shadowy representation of the Spirit of God. That's what the lampstand represented in the tabernacle. Watch this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. In Revelation 1.20, Jesus explains to John, Oh, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You might say, Okay, I see the church. But how is the lampstand then a picture of the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? Back in Revelation 1.4, and I'm just throwing this out there to freak you out this morning. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, he wrote, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Is, was, is to come. Indication of the Trinity there. And he says, And from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. Him who is and who was and who is to come, God the Father. And from Jesus Christ, Jesus the Son, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now people come to that and they go, Oh, I had enough trouble understanding one spirit. And you're telling me, John, that there are seven spirits? It's a euphemism that John is using to describe the Holy Spirit. And in Hebrew theology, that would be easily understood. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we have a detail of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you read through that, Isaiah 11.2, there are six different things listed. Well, if there are six things, then how come it's a sevenfold ministry of the Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit, like the lampstand, would be the shaft. And the six ministries would be the six branches coming off for a total of seven lights. The lampstand portrays for us the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we see the lampstand, or lampstands, in the heavens. 
Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, go back and read this on your own time, talks about, describes the lampstand as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Well, the lampstand is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the seven lampstands are seven churches. How does that work? Because the Holy Spirit is actively at work in and among the church. We would not be able to do a single good thing, folks, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit present in us, for His power in this place. Anything that is accomplished with with kingdom principles, anything of value that we do eternally is because the Holy Spirit is at work in us individually and collectively as a church body. We are pictured as a lampstand, which is the picture of the Holy Spirit because He is so intimately connected to us. So the lampstand's there. Revelation chapter 8 shows us the altar of incense there in the heavens as well. Revelation 8, verse 3, Another angel came and stood at the altar having, holding a golden censer, and incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. John is seeing this in heaven, the golden altar of incense. And so when the Lord says to Moses and to David, I want you to build after the pattern, he's having Moses, having David design something that is based on something greater, something heavenly. The implication is eternal says in Revelation 8.4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. The Ark of the Covenant itself makes a showing in heaven. Did, did you see in the news the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia claimed to have the real Ark? They, they claimed to have it in a, in a little shrine there in Ethiopia. And this Orthodox leader, this patriarch of the Orthodox Church was going to the Vatican last week. And it was all the buzz that he had said in the Vatican he was going to show the world, present to the world for the first time in over 2,000, 3,000 years, the Ark of the Covenant was going to be unveiled. I saw that in the news and I went, yeah, right. The day came for the unveiling and there was nothing in the news. And the next day, there was still nothing in the news. And I went, well, that's interesting. You'd think if the Ark of the Covenant was unveiled before the world that we would have heard something. Three days later, in the news, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church apologized and didn't mean to imply that he was actually going to show the real Ark of the Covenant. Why is that? Well, I don't think it's here. I I guess it could be possibly the, the shadow of the true one. But we see in Revelation 11, verse 19, that the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. My point is this. Even if the ark were yet present and discoverable on the earth, it is a copy of the real thing. All these things that were earthly, tabernacle or temple constructions were copies of the real thing. An eternal implication. Secondly, an incarnational implication. When we think about the design structure of the temple and the tabernacle, there's an incarnational implication. John 1.14, we've seen this many times. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Skenuo is the word in the Greek. It means tabernacled. Jesus, when He came in the flesh, tabernacled among us. The tabernacle itself, and I encourage you, if you haven't done it, go back to the Exodus study. It's online. And go through the study of the tabernacle because we see point by point, furniture by furniture, design all the way through, it all pictures Jesus Christ. Even the placement of the tabernacle in the midst of the Hebrew people. From an aerial view, you would see a cross. It's unbelievable. It's an absolutely stunning thing to recognize. An incarnational implication. The tabernacle and the temple both powerfully represent Jesus. John 2.19, Jesus said to the people, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now listen, if you want to go further with this, a great study is to look at Jesus' first and second coming and compare them to the tabernacle and the temple respectively. What is different about the temple from the tabernacle is also different about Christ's second coming from his first coming. The tabernacle is a type of his first coming. There was nothing much to look at on the outside. If you saw it set up, it was just a tent in the desert. It was not flashy or impressive. Oh, the door was woven and beautiful, but the rest all the way around, it just looked like a Bedouin tent. It wasn't even that big. But inside, it was beautiful. It was said to have been absolutely stunning. The the weaving on the inside of the curtains and the furniture itself and the way things were placed and lit, it was an incredibly beautiful place. 
Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us Jesus grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And for 30 years, Jesus walked on the face of the earth, a relative unknown. Aside from the birth, which, you know, obviously things were probably said around Nazareth, comments were made, but as Jesus grew up, he was so normal looking. No one would have seen him as anything special. In fact, when he came on the scene as Messiah, and he began to proclaim that and do the miracles and teach and preach in that power all over the Galilee, people were looking at him going, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? He's just, he's just one of us. Like the tabernacle, Jesus was common on the outside in the flesh. And yet inside, all the glory of God was there. The temple... Well, that's a type of His second coming. For inside and out, it was grand and glorious, a portent of what was to come. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, describing the glorified, resurrected Jesus, who we will see in His second coming, who we will see prior to that. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You model builders, do you remember going outside on particularly boring days as kids and and doing the sun stare? Do you remember that? Six seconds! I watched for six seconds! I can't see now! You know, I mean, it was one of the activities that we engaged in as as kids. And John says when he looked at Jesus, he had to look away. In fact, he fell down like a dead man because Jesus in His glory was so stunning, so amazing. The bottom line of all this, gang, is that Jesus... Ultimately, is portrayed in all Bible typology. It all points to Jesus. All of the things that we see that God commands, it all is a big fat arrow to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.17, Paul says, the substance belongs to Christ. And so I remind you again, even as we go through Second Chronicles, as we work our way through the Hebrew Scriptures, we are constantly looking for Jesus, looking for pictures of Jesus. Focusing our hearts, our minds, our eyes on Jesus Christ. He is the point of the whole thing. But wait, there's more. There's an eternal implication. There is an incarnational implication. And number three, and this is really one I want to talk about this morning. There's a congregational implication. Congregational. As we consider the temple, I want you to think about something here. With less than a year left in this barn, and the need to move out and build a house... For the name of the Lord over on Troxel Road, I want you to think about why we do what we do. <clears throat> Specifically, why do we gather here in this barn to begin with? Well, why do we need a meeting place at all? And there are those who would say, Sunday's my day, and church services just get in the way of time off from a busy week. There are others who would say, we need to change things up a bit. Because what we do... Honestly, it's a little old, Rick. We've been doing this for coming up on six years now. I was sitting over there during communion thinking about the fact that um, I remember how excited I was every Sunday morning when the bridge first started. I could not wait to get down to the barn. And I still feel that way. It hasn't changed. You know what we're doing this morning? Worship, communion, time in the Word, praying together. It's exactly what we did six years ago. And there are those who would stand up and say, shake it up a bit, man. I mean, doesn't it get old? Doesn't it just get boring after a while? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have a more artsy, interactive climate? That's something we've talked about. It goes on in the emergent church. Stations set up around where people can kind of engage in, in more creative forms and aspects of worship. Other people would say it's unnecessary for us to meet at all, really, as a large church body. I mean, whatever. That's, that's kind of old school. Let's go to house churches like they did in the first century. And I have watched, and in my short lifetime, about every five to ten years, there is a resurgence of house church movements. 
But people saying, this is the way to go. We're missing it. We've got to get back to the first century pattern. Well, if that's the pattern you think we should use, let's double check it. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. <clears throat> and breaking bread from house to house. You see, in the first century church, it was not either or, it was both and. Yes, we should be in each other's homes. Yes, we need small group fellowship. Yes, we need to connect twos and threes and fives and tens in small groups of people. But they met by design in the temple as well for larger group worship and teaching. It was part of the deal. It's what the Lord determined ahead of time. This is the way I'd like it to go. That's the pattern. There is a pattern biblically for corporate fellowship, for corporate teaching and worship. Gang, I believe that God has a divine design in place here. A precise pattern that includes what we're doing here this morning. Now, watch this. Let's go a little further. Back to our passage in 2 Chronicles. Verse 4. Don't miss this. Behold, Solomon says, I am about to build a house for, and you might want to circle the word for, for the name of the Lord my God. The temple was for the Lord. One of the first places we get off base when we begin to to decry the way we do things, and I'm not about tradition and doing things just because that's always how we've done it, but one of the first places we get off base is when we start to shift and think about how it blesses us as opposed to how we bless the Lord. The temple, Solomon said, is for the Lord. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Colossians 1.16 All things have been created through Him and for Him. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul says, There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. That should be, if we had a mantra, there it is. We exist for Him. When you give your life to Christ Jesus, from that point forward, you exist for Him. The one Lord, he says, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So we exist for Jesus, and we exist through Jesus, and that's the whole point. And the description of the purpose of this house for the Lord that Solomon gives does not include weight loss seminars. It does not include how-to classes for Christian gardening. Or any other programs or courses for the betterment of the people. You will not see it in the temple. It was all about and for the Lord, period. Well, Rick, I was really blessed by a weight loss program in a, in a previous church setting. Wonderful. I'm not even saying that all the programs that are offered in churches out there are bad things. What I'm saying is we so quickly get off base focusing on how the church can bless me, what the church can do for me, how I can be bettered by what's going on in the church, instead of saying, are we focused on the Lord? This house is not for you. It is not for me. And I sure hope you didn't show up this morning thinking, boy, I hope he's not boring today because I really need to be picked up. Because it's not for you. It's not for me. Going back to that early first century pattern of the church, Acts 2 verse 42, tells us they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There you go. There's the divine design. What did the church do in the first century? Apostles' teaching. They fellowshiped. They broke bread and they prayed. That's what they did. I don't see any other programs that were developed at least in the first 15, 20, 30 years for life learning skills or how I can be you know, a more fulfilled person. I see the focus on the Lord. Acts 2.47 says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of the reasons I think evangelism is lower in America than it used to be is because we are so focused on trying to please everybody. And it gets old. I can't compete with Disneyland. You want to have fun? You want two or three days of fantasy and excitement and vacation? Go to Disneyland! There it is for you. That's not what this is about. We are not to compete with the world. We have something that the world cannot offer. And that is Jesus Christ who is the centerpiece of everything we do. Of our entire focus. 
Where are the self-help programs in the first century church or in Solomon's temple? Where are the campaigns? Where's the marketing of religion? Okay, all this to say we leave the pattern when we shift the focus to man over God instead of to God at the center. Going on in verse 4, look at the specific things that Solomon said would happen with this house for the name of the Lord my God. He said, we're going to dedicate it to Him to burn fragrant incense before Him. To set out the showbread continually. And to offer burnt offerings morning and evening. On Sabbaths and on new moons and on appointed feasts of the Lord our God. This being required forever in Israel. It was all by the Lord, to the Lord, about the Lord, for the Lord. That's why the temple existed. You will not find a shred of evidence in the biblical writings, in the scriptures, that say the temple was for the people. Until Herod came along and wanted to curry the favor of the people. But in God's divine design, it was all for and about God. Now think about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, we are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The congregational implication of both the tabernacle and its design and the temple and its design is that not, it's not that the temple exists for the congregation, it's that we are the temple who exists for the Father. We are the temple. Note these three things about what Solomon did in terms of the fragrant incense being burned and the showbread being set out and the burnt offerings happening. He said it was morning and evening every day. It was on Sabbaths once a week in addition to every day. It was new moons once a month in addition to every week in addition to every day. And at the festivals or the the feast, the, the appointed feast of the Lord our God, which was numerous times throughout the year in addition to every month, in addition to every week, in addition to every single day. In other words, the temple, and you might jot this down, the temple was for the Lord perpetually. Not just once a week. Or twice a week if you were really faithful. The temple was for the Lord perpetually. We, the temple, existing for the Lord perpetually, morning, noon, and night. Psalm 92 verse 1 says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Psalm 42 verse 8 says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Let me give you a vision for the house of the Lord, or a house for the name of the Lord that we intend to or desire to build over on Troxel. If the Lord tarries long enough, and we build that building, my vision for it, what I see, is a place where people gather daily. Every day. You're driving to work. And as you're coming up, maybe you come out of Oak Harbor and you head around and you go to Mount Vernon or down to Seattle area and you're driving. And as you pass by Troxel Road, suddenly you swing into Troxel. You go down a little ways, you hang a left into the parking lot there, you park your car, you get out, and you go into the building, and there are people in there, and they're worshiping, and communion is set out every morning. And you can come and commune with the Lord before you ever go to work at the beginning of the day, worshiping with people. Or it's evening, and you've had a long, hard day of of struggle, and you pull into the church, and there are people praying. While worship continues. A place where people gather daily. That's part of my... A place where people gather weekly. At least one day a week in addition to what's going on throughout the week. Not programs. Not all kinds of various things to better ourselves. But worship and communion and ministry. Every day happening in the church. And then once a week a special day set aside where we all gather. Where our highest priority is being with the body of Christ. Joining together in worship And hearing the word where Sabbath is set in motion in our hearts, which is what we're doing right now. A place where people gather monthly and annually. New moons, appointed feasts, special convocations, you know, Christmas and Easter. But you know what we do? Our culture flips it upside down. We got it backwards. Where the vast majority of people show up at a church somewhere, maybe, on Christmas and Easter. 
a few more people show up more often than that. And a few more people show up more often than that. But the more often people are showing up, the less the numbers tend to be as we gather together in the house of the Lord. It doesn't have to be in the house. I recognize that. Because meeting in, to get in each other's homes is, is a vital part of the vibrant life of a church. But we get backwards, gang. We, we try to invite the Lord into our lives rather than coming to Him. God, would you, would you join me while I'm doing what I'm doing today as opposed to starting the day saying, Lord, I want to join you in what you're doing today. I want to be aligned to your purposes today. I want to be a part of what you are already doing. Part of the reason, gang, for a geographical location, and the Lord saw fit for this with the tabernacle, He saw fit for the temple, even for a church building, it's to remind us to come to Him. And I'm not limiting the, the Lord to, to a building. He's not limited, but we are. And we need to be drawn out of ourselves to the place where the Lord is. I've shared with you before, the southern steps of the temple are irregular. If you just tried to blindfold yourself and just rush up the steps, they are at different heights going up and down. You'd fall flat on your face. But it was purposeful. It wasn't that they couldn't get the exact elevation right. Each step is a different height from the previous one so that the worshiper coming up to the temple would have to pause and think about what he was doing before he got to the top and entered onto the temple mount. To consider what you are coming to do. And I was thinking out here we ought to put some irregular steps in the parking lot just so people are falling down and you know, what am I doing here this morning? Why am I here? When we approach the Lord, we would do well to consider what it is we do and where we do what we do and why we do what we do and who we're doing it all for in the first place. The temple was for the Lord perpetually. The temple was for the Lord sacrificially. Solomon delineates three perpetual sacrificial services that were the hub of temple activity. The burning of the showbread, or or the incense, pardon me, the, the incense that was constant before the Lord and it's a picture of prayer. And the setting out of the showbread, that picture both of Jesus but also of the Word, constantly out there. And burnt offerings, picture of sacrifice that happened continually. And I could really get going on the biblical topology of all three of these things. I'm going to save that for another study. But I want you to recognize that all three of these things are determined or defined as worship by sacrifice. All three of these things had sacrificial element to them. And I point that out because we as the temple of the Lord are not to be about self-satisfaction, but self-sacrifice. And sacrifice is not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. Self-satisfaction is pretty easy. It doesn't take much. Self-sacrifice is difficult. It requires the hard choice. Now, I, I know I harp on this. But why do we feel the need as churches to offer anything other than that which elevates the Lord. What is it about humanity that says in our churches we've got to do all these other things? I remember in the first year that the bridge was here and a a man came to me on a Sunday morning and he said, man, man, the service was great this morning. He just loved it. And the next week he came back again and said, man, it was better than last week. Third week in a row he came to me and said, It was even better than last week, which was better than the week before. And you know the first thought that came to my mind? At some point, he's going to level out. Because we're not going to be able to do better than what we did last week. We're not going to be able to play better, or sing better, or teach better, or hang out better. You know, at some point, that's going to be the best, and then it's downhill from there. That's kind of what got me thinking about the six years and where we are right now. We're doing the same thing. We're sending the Word. We're worshiping. We're sharing communion. We have time to fellowship and be together. It's the same thing. And yet, gang, why is it we think we've got to do something else? We get bored. We are ADD spiritually. The Lord is calling us to a divine design. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. <coughs> I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Again, it is for the Lord and not for us. The temple was for the Lord perpetually and sacrificially. But finally, and here's the big idea this morning, it's a personal implication of the temple. The temple was for the Lord personally. What do you mean? 
the whole point of David's desire to build the temple would be a place to draw the people around their God. A place where God would sit at the center about the person of God. And the personal implication is that each of us, we are corporately as a body called to gather around the Father, to be about the Father, to be for the Father. But personally, so are you individually in your life. You are called as a believer in Jesus Christ to be centered around Him. To have your whole life be about Him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Paul said, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Another way to say this is, Do you not know that our lives are to be God-centered? Not that our God should be man-centered? And even in our prayers, there's that reflection of God. I need you to do... Would you help? I need for... As opposed to, What do you want, Lord? Your will. Your will be done, Father. Do you want to learn what it really means to live a Christ-centered life? There's a rhythm to it. There's a pattern to follow. There is a way to walk in the flow of the Spirit of God. And once again, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sanctification. The biblical design is a perpetual following after Jesus. Not once a week. Not twice a week. Morning, noon, and night. Every day, every moment of your life. A perpetual, sacrificial. Which means it's not always easy. Which means you're not doing it for what you get. But what you can give. A personal alignment with God through Jesus Christ. John 14.23 Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come make our abode with him. So even as I look inward to myself, there he is. At the center. At the focal point. Notice, by the way, Jesus says the one who loves Him keeps His word. Why? Because it's the divine design. The pattern is here. The model before us. The instruction so that our submarines don't sink is right here in our hands for sanctification and life. And the church is, by design, you and me, a people walking together in worship of our great God, perpetually, sacrificially, and personally. Do you want to be in sync with the Lord? Got an email, and I won't say it was from Shelby, but I love that email. It was actually she was talking to Tom about involvement, maybe singing on the worship team, and and uh, and Tom copied me on it, and I read it, and just the heart behind it was, I want to engage. I want to be active in the temple. I, I want to be involved in what's going on. I want to be in sync with the Lord. I mean, in essence, that's what I I see you saying. I want to be in sync. Well, how do we do that? Have you noticed that some people just seem to be in sync with Jesus all the time? You love being around those people because when you're with them, that's all we talk about. Jesus Christ. Jesus this. Jesus that. It's all about the church. It's all about following Him. And you look at those people and go, wow, that'd be so cool to be like that. To be one of those. Gang, we get out of sync with the Lord when we ignore, forget, or reject the original pattern of the temple. What do you mean? It didn't take long for Solomon's temple to fall into neglect, disrepair, and worse, apostasy. A brief history of the temple. King Shishak of Egypt captured all the gold treasures during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. One generation, and a foe came in and took the gold. 1 Kings chapter 14, 25, and 26. And we see as we read through the kings, and you're going to see some of this in 2 Chronicles, when things got tight financially or politically, some of the kings actually went into the temple and pillaged the dedicated things. That is, those things set aside for the Lord, for the temple, for future restoration, and they would pull those out to send tribute to foreign kings and dignitaries to keep Israel safe. It's the wrong direction. King Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 verse 4 and 5 actually built altars to the constellations in the temple itself. This place that was supposed to be about God very quickly fell into neglect and disrepair. The actual pattern of temple worship that we are reading about even this morning that we see in in the Torah and in verse of 2 Kings and here in, in Chronicles was completely lost for an entire generation. Until Josiah recovered it, 2 Kings 22. 
they lost the design. Why? Because no one was reading it. No one cared about it. And so Torah law was fallen by the wayside. They found it in a back room in the temple. You Bible students know 374 years after it was built, Solomon's temple was completely destroyed. Man, what a picture of the life that gets off track with Jesus. It starts beautiful. The intentions are great with God at the center. But as we begin to ignore the divine design, as we begin to ignore the pattern that is laid out, it's simply right there before us, we start to break down. Ultimately, until the enemy comes and wipes out what is there. And when Solomon's temple was completely destroyed, the ark disappeared and has not been seen since. That was the first temple. The ark was never placed into the second temple because they didn't have it. Consequently, the Spirit of God was never in the second temple, at least as far as we could tell. He never had His Spirit, His glory reside there like He did with Solomon. Well, 70 years later, the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem. And Haggai the prophet writes the following, Haggai 1 verse 3, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you to, yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So 444 years after the initial building of Solomon's temple, the house was desolate. So they rebuilt the temple. But it wasn't nearly to the grandeur and glory of the first one. The second temple did not do it. Ezra chapter 3 verse 10 says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, all the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They're getting back to it. But many of the priests, Ezra 3.12, and the Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. Why? Because it just it didn't have the grandeur. The second time around. The next 500 years of that second temple, we continue to see looting and defiling and disrepair. Herod comes along in 37 B.C. And he began a massive 46-year remodeling project all the way to the time of Jesus, making the temple, this temple, the remodel, even more grand, more fantastic, more stunning than Solomon's temple. But it completely lacked the heart. It was just a big, beautiful structure with no power. Because it was all about, as I said earlier, Herod currying the favor of the Jews, trying to get the Jews to accept him as a bogus king. What was the problem with all this? The problem gained down through the entire history of the temple, and we apply it to ourselves, is the pattern was available, but the people stopped following it. The pattern was there. Daily, morning, noon, and night, weekly, gathering in the larger body. Monthly, annually, the congregation, the temple of the Lord, it's part of the larger picture here, the larger design of the Lord. But I'm telling you, gang, if you want to walk in closer fellowship with the Lord, showing up less often is not the way to do it. It's not going to help. It's, it's departing from the divine design. Oh, so it's an attendance sermon this morning. No, it's not. It's a sanctification message. Do you want to be in sync with Jesus Christ? Man, then you be in the temple like Jesus was every time the doors were open. We talked about this on Wednesday night, how Joshua would not leave the tabernacle. Moses went back to be where the people were. Joshua stayed at the tabernacle. He wouldn't leave. And when Jesus' parents were looking for him at age 12, where did they find him? In the temple. There where the other believers were, gathered together. The pattern was available, but the people stopped following. The directions for the model are included for us. But the people ignored them. First Chronicles 28.19, David said all this, The Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. Brothers and sisters, if the hand of the Lord is upon you, if Jesus is in your life, you've got to understand the details are here. The design is available. Paul writes in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even with weeping, they are enemies now of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, listen to this, who set their minds on earthly things. That was Herod's problem. He made the temple an earthly thing when it was a copy, a model, a pattern of the heavenly one. And it was not about worshiping God for Herod. It was about worshiping Herod. It's about being centered on Him. Paul says, Our citizenship, gang, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now I recognize there are all manner of approaches to the Lord out there. There are all kinds of modes and methods and styles and flavors among churches in the world today. But gang, we've got to realize there is one pattern. There is one design. It is very simple. It is very basic. It involves the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship. And the breaking of bread. And prayer. And I've said before, it really is that simple. What is the pattern? It's a life centered on Jesus, perpetually, sacrificially, personally. It's not a game. It's not self-help. It's not pop religion. It's you and me being the church by divine design. One last thing. Look at verse 5. The house which I am about to build will be great, Solomon says. And then he points out, remember he's, he's talking now to Hiram, king of Tyre, a pagan, And he says, for greater is our God than all the gods. Greater is our God than all the gods. Solomon acknowledges the gods of the nations round about. But he recognizes that greater is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel than all other gods. He is the greatest God. He is the only God. Not all the little gods that we tend to sacrifice to in our lives. But He is the great God. Hebrews 12.22 tells us, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. And I guarantee you, when we surround the throne in heaven, we will not be in small groups and homes. Please hear me. I'm not against that. I am for it. Intimate personal fellowship. I do believe it's absolutely critical. But we will, as a large congregation, gather around and sing hallelujah, praise to Jesus, and we will be in awe of Him, and we won't want to do a single other thing, morning, noon, and night. I challenge you, as I am again challenged myself, live by divine design. Live by divine design. It's simple, it's straightforward, Follow Jesus. His way. Holy Father, we thank You, Lord, that You have been, that You are purposeful in the way You have set up Your church just as You were in the way You set up the temple. We see the the model, the pattern, the example. It's, It's clear, simple, obvious. And if we truly were to take an honest look, Lord, I believe at the church today and compare it to the church of the first 20 or 30 years, if we were to do a comparison, Father, with the book of Acts, I think we would see that we have complicated something that was very simple and very specific and well-designed. God, I'm praying that You will lead us in simple sanctification in lives of faith, perpetually, sacrificially, personally. Lord Jesus, be at the heart and center of everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.